1: I think it contributes to the understanding of the ancillary effects of the war. It's been said that the war created two nations, the United States of America immediately and Canada eventually.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Stuart Manson discussing the loyalists who fled to Canada and their attempts to protect them after the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Stuart Manson. And he's going to be discussing a little study topic of the loyalists, refugees, who fled the United States for Canada after the American Revolution. Stewart's research is very thorough and it's very fascinating. And it underscores the totality and the immensity and the logistical problems faced by an empire in the wake of an event as traumatic as the American Revolution. Thousands of loyalists... Uh, who remained steadfast to the crown, needed somewhere to live. Many went to Canada and it would fall upon the Canadians and the Empire of Great Britain to support them materially uh, until they can get on their feet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Stuart Manson. Stuart Manson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background.
1: Well, I was born and bred in the loyalist city of Cornwall, Ontario, which incidentally used to be called New Johnstown after the original Johnstown in the Mohawk Valley of New York State. And I studied history at the University of Ottawa, and I worked as a young man at Parks Canada and in museums. But for the last 26 years, I've been the co-owner of an historical research firm in Ottawa called Public History, Inc., which specializes in Indigenous projects, mainly litigation and claims. At Public History, I've been able to work on projects dealing with subjects from coast to coast, uh, conducting primary source research at Library and Archives Canada, provincial archives, private archives, and write dozens of historical reports. But my work at Public History tends to deal in late 19th and 20th century uh, time period projects, for the most part, sometimes delving into the 18th century, but these Projects are usually shrouded in confidentiality agreements naturally, so I can rarely talk about uh, the specifics. So, outside of my, my public history career work, I research and write about the Loyalist experience and the early history of Upper Canada, now Ontario. I have a book series called Sacred Ground, Loyalist Cemeteries of Eastern Ontario. The first volume was released in 2021, and the second volume is in preparation, and it's due in late 2023. And it's published by Global Heritage Press and distributed by uh, Global Genealogy and i'm also the proprietor of a micro periodical called the king's colour a broadside of early upper canada and i've written for publications such as the loyalist, Get, uh, G- loyalist gazette and more recently the journal of the american revolution
0: what first drew your interest into this topic
1: well i've always been interested in the the history of Uh, the Loyalists and the earliest settler history of Upper Canada, which later became the province of Ontario, because it's a time period of of great upheaval and transition. It's a topic that links the colonial American experience in the Thirteen Colonies to the British experience in Canada. And the development of a a brand new colony, Upper Canada, which was the British Empire's first inland colony. And its early history was uh, really touch and go, a touch and go fight for survival in the early years. So it was an underdog story if there ever was one. So uh, I suppose that my interest in the topic uh, came to me at an early age. When I was young, every family vacation was a trip to an historic site, whether it be a fort, a battlefield, or a heritage cemetery. And many of these trips were in the Lake Champlain and Mohawk Valley region of New York State, in particular because that's where my paternal ancestors came from. They were members of the Loyalist Regiment called the King's Royal Regiment of New York, uh, who later resettled in Canada. But I also have a rebel or patriot ancestor or two, one of whom was killed at the bloody Battle of Oriskany in 1777. So my own personal family history highlights the havoc of the period and underscores the characterization of the American Revolutionary War as a a civil war of sorts. So that's uh, also uh, is is of interest uh, to me. And I should also note that in, uh, back in elementary school, many moons ago, the, the school I went to was called Sir John Johnson Public School, named after the prominent Loyalist leader, Sir John Johnson. So perhaps that was also another contributing factor in my interest in the topic of the Loyalists.
0: Who was a Loyalist in the American
1: Revolution? Well, in essence, the Loyalists were residents of the American Thirteen Colonies who supported the royal cause during the American Revolutionary War in a variety of ways. The most common was enlistment in one of the various Loyalist provincial regiments established by the British during the conflict. This included the King's Royal Regiment of New York, which was the largest to operate out of Canada during the war. Other regiments included Butler's Rangers, which was headquartered in the Niagara region, and the Royal Highland Immigrants, which was one of the few provincial regiments to be upgraded to a proper British numbered regiment, the 84th Regiment to Foot. But military service was not the only way in which Loyalists exhibited their imperial patriotism and support for the crown. Civilians rendered service by providing intelligence and provisioning support, often from behind enemy lines, to Loyalist British and Indigenous raiding or scouting parties, for example. While there were some Loyalists scattered throughout all the 13 colonies, and while their numbers are debatable, it's clear that they were not an insignificant portion of the population. There were um, areas in the southern colonies, for instance, that were hotbeds of of loyalism, as well as some pockets in northern colonies, such as in uh, New York. And uh, following the end of the war, the loyalists were no longer welcome in the newly minted United States of America, and thus began the loyalist diaspora. Most went to Nova Scotia region uh, on the east coast, But large numbers also settled in what was then called Canada or Quebec, a portion of which eventually became Upper Canada or Ontario. How did Canada view these people? Yeah, sure. Uh, Loyalists began trickling into Canada or Quebec at the start of the American Revolutionary War and throughout its duration. For French Canadians, the original residents of uh, the the colony of of Canada and Quebec, the Loyalists' arrival was yet another influx of strangers into the region. Quebec, formerly part of uh, New France, had become a British colony in the Seven Years' War by force in 1759 and 1760, and by treaty in 1763. Thereafter, English-speaking merchants and traders arrived, and red-coated garrisons were a a constant presence. And, of course, the the rebel or patriot army invaded Quebec in the early part of the American Revolutionary War in 1775-76, so that brought the war to the firesides of most French-Canadian residents. When the colony was liberated by the British in the spring of 1776, British reinforcements also brought more strangers, regiments of German auxiliary troops, commonly known as Hessians, although a majority arriving in Quebec as part of that liberating army were from uh, the German state of Brunswick and, and not Hesse. Um, but near the end of the war, more and more loyalists arrived in Canada, in particular the families of loyalist soldiers who were forced out of their homes in the 13 colonies, and and they had become residents of the various refugee camps in and around Montreal, Quebec City, and Trois-Rivières, where conditions were not great and because there was not a lot of open land in the settled parts of uh, Quebec, they all looked forward to their new lives, wherever that may be. What were Canada's
0: plans for Loyalists following the war?
1: Conditions were were not great for the return of most Loyalists in, to their homes, their, their original homes in the 13 colonies. And as noted, um, thousands of disbanded soldiers and their families were were sitting in temporary camps in Quebec, wondering about their future and their fates. Uh, British authorities also wondered about what to do with these landless refugees. And the central figure in this issue was Quebec Governor Frederick Haldimand. While many Loyalists went to Nova Scotia on the east coast of the uh, of the continent, uh, at first, Governor Haldeman did not seriously consider the upper St. Lawrence River area to be a natural landing spot for the Loyalists, even though it was largely unsettled and close to Montreal. This was the area that became Upper Canada. Um, But a few exploratory excursions up the river and its small tributaries on the north side of the St. Lawrence River convinced Haldeman to look closer, and there was also a campaign by some New York City loyalists to settle at the head of that river, the St. Lawrence, at Lake Ontario, at a spot um, referred to as Cataraqui, and later as, as Kingston. All these events induced Governor Haldimand to start surveying lands in that region and begin the administrative tasks of allotting lands and moving the Loyalists to these new townships. In this, he was aided by Loyalist leaders such as Sir John Johnson, the former commander of the King's Royal Regiment of New York, and he was also Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, like his famous father, Sir William Johnson. The townships, which were eventually called Royal Townships, um, they comprised farming lots and there were town sites with with town lots, and these were surveyed. And then finally, in the spring of 1784, the the flat-bottomed bateau Brigades moved upstream from Montreal, and the new lives of the Loyalists of Ontario was set to begin.
0: What challenges did Canada face in resettling these refugees?
1: Well, the the challenges were innumerable, as you can imagine. Surveying the lands, organizing the allotments, providing provisions and tools for the Loyalist settlers, all of these things amounted to a Herculean task. Added to this was the necessity by British authorities, the the governing agency um, in Canada at the time, for entering into treaties and agreements with the Indigenous communities who resided in the area. And this was done in accordance with British policy at the time. And, uh, and it was also in accordance with the, the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which required these kind of pre-arrangements before settlers came in to, uh, to take up lands. Now, the lands were by no means ready for cultivation. Forests and brush had to be cleared and stumps and roots removed um, without the benefits of any kind of modern technology, of course. So it, it would be some time before the Loyalists in this area could possibly be self-supporting. Uh, so luckily, the, the British government at the time allowed these disbanded soldiers to retain some of their brown best muskets, one for every five men, to take advantage of the plentiful hunting that could supplement their diets. But there was an early controversy to add to the, the complications and add to the challenges faced by the British government and uh, British authorities at the time. Governor Haldeman of Quebec and the former officers of the Loyalist regiments had um, a disagreement with respect to the allotment of these, these lands for the Loyalists. Haldeman wanted a completely random and therefore fair allotment of the lands. But Sir John Johnson and other Loyalist officers, however, wanted to have first choice of the prime lots, such as waterfront uh, lots and areas or uh, water power sites for, for mills. Despite Haldeman's explicit orders to the contrary, Sir John and his officers went ahead with their own plan to, to benefit themselves and the, the officer class. Um, Haldeman had to accept this as a done deal. But the management of these conflicting interests really represented yet another challenge. And this on top of the, the British government um, spending the last eight years of war on land and sea in, in really what was a, a global war. So the, the number of challenges from that perspective were, um, were many.
0: Stuart, talk about Canada's plans for feeding these people.
1: Sustenance uh, is uh, number one on the list of survival requirements, really, and British authorities knew that the the new Loyalist settlements on the upper St. Lawrence River could not be self-supporting in this way for some time, so they did two things. First, they fed the Loyalists and their families for three years with daily rations. There are nominal lists of these food disbursements, which are really useful for historical and and for genealogical purposes. They're called provision lists or victual lists. But secondly, they desperately searched for sources of good seed that could be used for planting in the new settlements on the, the new farms. This is the main focus of uh, my recent article in the Journal of the American Revolution, and local sources from French-Canadian farmers were non-existent because there were just no, no uh, sufficient supplies of surplus, so the British authorities had to look southward. The Loyalist settlements on the upper St. Lawrence River were adjacent to New York State and not too far from Lake Champlain and the area that would soon become the state of Vermont. So it was natural for them to to look there southward for these essential supplies. But it's uh, ironic, to say the least, that British authorities would look to New York and Vermont for this purpose because loyalist regiments and their British regular and indigenous allies had frequently ravaged those same areas during the war. They destroyed hundreds of barns and buildings and thousands of bushels of of, uh, rebel or patriot uh, grain in those raids throughout the entire war. One Loyalist tasked with making inquiries about getting seeds in New York was prevented from doing so because he was warned that such an attempt would be attended with disagreeable consequences. Eventually, the seeds were indeed procured and the Loyalist settlements embarked on a road to prosperity as part of the British Empire.
0: How did they get support from the British Empire or did they get support from the British Empire?
1: Well, in addition to providing crown lands for the Loyalists' farms and supplying rations, seeds, and tools, British authorities also set up a Financial Losses Claims Commission for the Loyalists, which paid compensation to many claimants. The archival records for these claims, which include submissions, affidavits, certificates and correspondence, offer amazing details about the lives of the Loyalists when they were living in the colonies and and soon afterwards as well. I wrote an article in early 2022 in the Loyalist Gazette about the, the usefulness of this archival source. The documents are all available on Ancestry.com or .ca here in Canada, and while they're indexed on that site, there's an extra resource that's useful for this research, a book by Bruce Antliff called Index to Monetary Claims by American Loyalists. It was just published uh, last year uh, by um, by Global Heritage Press, and it really assists in finding relevant claims within that set of archival records. Now one might think that the claim that this claims commission was only for well-to-do loyalists, but this was not the case. I've seen many claims submitted in which the claimant didn't even own their own land. the The claim was for household effects, a few pots and pans and whatnot, and for small amounts of of stored grain but conversely the claims of large landowners such as sir john johnson were for thousands of acres of lands uh, vast estates um, slaves uh, that sort of thing after resettlement in the loyalist um, the new uh, royal townships uh, the british also offered 200 acre crown land grants to all of the sons and daughters of verified verified loyalists free of charge the British Home Government also supplied a budget for the administration of the new settlements, which continued for some time, as there was obviously no form of, of revenue for this infant settlement. And lastly, of course, the existence of the British Army garrisons in Upper Canada and the area afforded protection for the young colony um, for, for some time uh, after, after the American Revolutionary War.
0: Stuart, how would you say life ultimately played out for these refugees?
1: Well, they, they suffered early on. Um, there was a, a crop failure year in 1788, 89. It was known as the hungry year. And, uh, the, but the, the loyalist settlements along the upper St. Lawrence river eventually started to prosper with grain surpluses and other advancements. Uh, the most significant political, uh, uh, event after the American Revolution was in 1791 when the region was separated from the old colony of Quebec to form a separate colony called Upper Canada with a a proper legislature and representative government which didn't exist before in in the area. The Loyalists were joined by later uh, migrants uh, to the colony, many from the United States who were in search of the free or inexpensive land on offer to prospective settlers in Upper Canada, but also Also migrants directly from Britain, in particular from Scotland in the the early years. War with the United States reared its head once again, one generation later during the War of 1812, luckily Upper Canada was preserved in that war, significantly by the fortitude of the British regular regiments that were on hand in the colony. Upper Canada itself eventually became the province of Ontario, one of the founding jurisdictions of the Dominion of Canada in 1867, which evolved into the current nation of Canada. In Canada, though, the the memory of the Loyalists lives on in school curricula, although not to the extent that it rightly deserves, and in organizations such as the United Empire Loyalists Association of Canada which is an organization much like the Daughters of the American Revolution in the US. The the United Empire Loyalists Association is is interested uh, significantly in genealogical connections back to the original Loyalists. And there's also a a fantastic Loyalist museum in the small village of Williamstown, Ontario, in, in eastern Ontario a community named after Sir William Johnson, the father of Loyalist leader Sir John Johnson. It's called the Glengarry Norwesters and Loyalist Museum and is well worth a visit. And uh, according to a a 1789 proclamation by Sir Guy Carleton, Lord Dorchester, descendants of Loyalists to this day can affix the letters UE to the end of their names. These letters were a mark of honor for the Loyalists' efforts towards the uh, unity of the empire.
0: How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better?
1: Well, my article in the Journal of the American Revolution that discusses the procurement of Loyalist settlement provisions from the 13 colonies following the war I think it contributes to the understanding of the ancillary effects of the war. It's been said that the war created two nations, the United States of America immediately and Canada eventually. Uh, While much has been written about the plight of the loyalists, for instance, uh, my uh, Jason Off's uh, book, Liberty's Exiles, is a good example of some fairly recent scholarship and and other relevant articles in the Journal of the American uh, Revolution. My article sheds light on the relationship between the two nations in the immediate aftermath of the war on a personal as well as a, a higher administrative level. It shows how personal animosities were still raw and sensitive in this early period, naturally, due to the vicious nature of many aspects of the American Revolutionary War. But at the same time, these potential problems were cast aside in an attempt to fill an important commercial requirement of supplying the loyalist settlements with necessities, showing that a developing commercial relationship between the two nations could be mutually beneficial, this type of relationship between the two nations has blossomed into the strong commercial compact that currently exists between Canada and the United States, one which will continue to bear fruit if properly cultivated for years to come. And I think that, you know, personal, the use of personal stories like my in my article, interwoven into the grand narratives of the revolutionary era. era is an effective way to add additional color and texture to the subject matter and, and to assist in, the con- in public consumption of, of these histories. Uh, and this is assisted by the increased searchability of historical records with, with modern records databases and resources and the more broad accessibility of records and scanned collections makes this kind of, kind of granular treatment um, uh, possible. And, and finally, I think that a variety of voices and perspectives in the pages of the, the, the Journal of the American Revolution, um, which it always has done, offers real value. The American Revolutionary War is so central to the American identity that sometimes a, an alternate view from the other side of the ledger can help complete the picture and assist in a better understanding of the war, its participants, and, and all of its effects.
0: Stuart Manson. Thanks again. You're quite welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.